0: Welcome to the Valor Vault Podcast, the official podcast of South Willamette Valley Honor Flight. The Honor Flight Organization treats World War II, Korean War, and Vietnam War-era veterans to an all-expense-paid trip to Washington, D.C. to experience their memorials and to receive the public gratitude and thanks they may have never experienced. South Willamette Valley Honor Flight is a hub of the National Honor Flight Association, covering Lane, Lynn, Lincoln, and Benton Counties of Western Oregon. The goal of the Valor Vault podcast is to record and preserve the stories of our local veterans. Each week, you will hear from a different veteran as they tell their military stories and tell the stories of their honor flight. Some weeks, we will feature behind-the-scenes stories and interviews from the honor flight trips themselves. Some of these recordings are taken from the production of our two documentary films, Forgotten Heroes, An Honor Flight Story, tells the experiences of World War II veterans. Welcome Home, An Honor Flight Story, covers the Vietnam War era. Both films can be seen at www.swvhonorflight.org. The interviews featured on this podcast are unedited, as we don't want to take anything away from the veterans' stories as they choose to present them. This week... The Valor Vault podcast features an interview with Jack Douglas Sumner, a former supply officer from the United States Corps of Cadets at West Point, a retired support platoon leader at the 12th Infantry Regiment, who currently lives in Junction City, Oregon. Jack attended his honor flight in October of 2019, and his grandson served as his guardian for the flight. Here now, Jack Sumner.
1: I'm Jack Sumner. I live here in Junction City since 1988. I retired from the Army in 1985 after almost 30 years of service and um, do do different things around here. I've been councilman. I'm on the planning commission and uh, just try to help out the neighborhood. Worked for the Hearst Corporation for a number of years after I retired. In fact, I worked from them until 2001 and then I retired from them. So it's, you know, we keep busy. We got grandkids to take care of And it's, we use our extra money for grandbaby money, so to speak. It's, it's fun.
0: Good-sized family?
1: Well, I'm the oldest of eight. But there's only uh, four of us left, two girls and myself and my brother that lives in Lake Oswego. He's my youngest brother. And uh, But I have, of course, a wife and two girls. One's in New Jersey, one's here in Eugene. My son is in South Carolina. He's retired from the service as well. And... Uh, He's a government contractor. In fact, uh, he's going this week to Bahrain to do some work there for a few months.
0: So how did you hear about Honor Flight?
1: Oh, I've been involved in the Honor Flight thing, you know, donating and talking to people and trying to get them to go on the flights. I always thought that uh, we we should get all of the World War II veterans on the flight before... uh, using, and myself, you know, as a, as a Vietnam vet. But uh, the folks over in uh, at the honor flight said, well, come on. And I said, well, I'll take my grandson as my guardian. And uh, it was a great trip, because uh, my son, grandson and I were standing at the Lincoln Memorial, and I told him, I said, you know, it's almost 50 years ago My cousin and I were standing here and uh, talking about what I was getting ready to do. And the next morning, I caught a flight to Seattle and the following morning, I caught one, went to Southeast Asia for a little fun, travel and adventure.
0: What made you, I mean, you've been kind of involved with the organization. What made you want to do it yourself?
1: I, th- I thought it was a good time for my grandson, because you know he and I had been talking about it, and he had seen some of the uh, fellows on Facebook and other things like that. We have s- several people that we know personally know that uh, are veterans. You know, I had a friend of mine lived across the street from me. there on Quince. He was a <clears throat> excuse me a B-52 pilot. He passed away here a few weeks ago, and uh, my other neighbor, hes uh, he was a missile technician in the surface side of it, when I was a missile technician in submarines, and, you know, in 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated, he and I were in the same day room watching television. But we didn't know each other, and we found out about it here probably about 88 or 89. Mm-hmm. when we got to discussing what we did. And uh, it's been an interesting, you know, I never had a bad or a assignment while I was in the military. I had, went places I didn't exactly like, but I was always fortunate enough to work with people that let me do my job and I let them do their job. And the one thing that bothers me more than anything else is a lot of my friends, You know, weren't able to do what I did. And uh, I didn't suffer, excuse me, from what some of the kids that did when they came back from the war. Uh, You know, being on active duty after Vietnam, I was kept busy all the time. You know, I came back, went to Oklahoma, then went to Germany, Greece, the Netherlands, came back. Spent a few couple of years at uh, in California at Fort Ord, and I spent went from there to West Point and was at West Point for six years, and then I came back to California and finally wound up in Alabama at the Warren Officer Senior College uh, as an instructor, and then I retired. I just it was sort of like it wasn't fun anymore, so I had a chance to, to get out, thought I had a job. When I got here to Oregon, It didn't have a job. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it, it, you know, everything works. I've always been a fatalist in that anything that happens to me is for a reason, you know. If we hadn't have moved to Oregon, you know, my daughter wouldn't have met her husband. I wouldn't have two great grandkids here in, in Oregon. You know, she suffered, she lost her husband but everything happens for a reason, and uh, it gave my wife and I something to do in our old age. You know. Uh, you know, on that flight, <laughs> it was nice to be with a, a group of people that that were enjoying themselves, and uh, like when we went to the wall, uh, I had been there before. Uh, in fact. Uh, when I was at West Point, I came down with a company of cadets that marched in the parade during the uh, dedication of the wall. That was interesting time. I was in uniform, and in Washington, D.C., if you was in uniform, you were hard-pressed to be able to buy a beer or, or a hamburger if somebody wouldn't, you know, step up and want to take care of it for you. It was. That was a, a homecoming, so to speak.
0: So you said a lot of this depends on, or depended on the decision to have your grandson go
1: with you. Oh, yes. Well, no, I'd, if if he hadn't wanted to go, I probably wouldn't have waited longer. There's why, other, but, why the
0: importance of having him go?
1: Well, he's never been, well, he's traveled. You know, he's gone to Florida to Disney World or whatever it is down there and things like that. But he and I got to talking about it, and he got really interested. He's a history buff, and uh, I said, "Well, you know, it's a place we could go and see a lot of things. It'll be rushed, and and as we found out, it was very rushed. We could, we could have stayed a week and wouldn't have gotten everything done that we wanted to do. But uh, it was it was a turning stone, so to speak, when he got him." got interested in it, and I said, well, let me call up and talk to the folks and see when we can go. And I was already on the list, so they said, well, call me up and say, okay, October good for you, and I said, well, sure. <laughs> and as it turned out, he only missed uh, one day of school. You know, he arranged it with his professors to take care of his work, and we left and went on the trip, and. We didn't. In fact, uh, when we got back, we were going to stay the night in Portland, but he had a class the next morning, so my wife picked us up, and we left rather than doing so the next day, which was scheduled for the other folks. Uh, now, my gr- uh, I'm, I'm very proud of him, and I anything that I can do with him is uh, a bonus, you know.
0: And he enjoyed uh, even with the rushed pace. He he enjoyed. Oh yes,
1: we had <laughs> we had a surprise when we were in Weston at the hotel. My son that lives in South Carolina, he drove up, and we got off the bus, and there he was, and uh, that was very good, you know. Three generations, you know, standing there, got to meet some of the motorcycle drivers that were escorting us on those trips, those folks, you know, some of them were veterans, some of them were still on active duty that were, you know, riding the bikes to, to escort us to the first trip there that day. Now, we got to meet a, a lot of uh, interesting people. My grandson, uh, you know, as my guardian, I'm sort of a bad person to be a, have a guardian. Uh, I tend to walk away and do my own thing. <laughs> and his uh, leader, team leader had to get after him about, you know, you need to keep a hold of your grandfather. He's, uh, you know, wandering off. And, you know, I'm not, I'm old, but I'm not feeble and stuff. And so I talked, he told me about it, I said, well, I'll talk to him. So I talked to his team leader. I said, if you want to get upset with somebody, just get upset with me. <laughs> it wasn't meant to, uh, you know, get him in trouble. Or Well, he wasn't in trouble, it's just that they want to make sure that the guardians stay with the uh, the veteran, so that if they need something, uh, they can get it for them and, and assist them. I've even talked to Mike Punchguard and uh, the other folks uh, about being a, a guardian, but I'm too old. You know, they don't want anybody older than seventy, and well, that leaves me out. I'm eighty.
0: Uh, so tell me about Washington D.C. You granted you've been there before,
1: right? And, but and
0: how was it for this
1: trip? Oh, it was great. Uh, we got to go to several places that uh, we hadn't been before. You know, the DAV uh, Memorial was new. Uh, we went to the Air Force uh, facility. And uh, But we missed out on going to a couple of places because they were closed. Uh, the, the big thing for me uh, was going to the wall. I got a couple of rubbings while I was there. Because before, when I'd gone to the wall, they had, you know, you could get slips of paper and do it yourself, and you could still do that. But they had a fellow that was walking around, had a little electronic device with him with some paper and he would find uh, the veteran you're looking for and uh, Get a rubbing the fellow that I did I, He and I uh, Had a little excursion the same day in 19 in 1970 he got shot down in the morning. I got shot down about an hour and a half later and and uh, but he didn't survive his, his encounter with the, the other people. Nine, I just spent the night on the river with the riverboat guys, and the next morning we got another aircraft in to pick us up, and we went back to work. Uh, we spent, the outfit I was in when I, see, I came out of the Navy into the Army, and A lot of people thought I was crazy, but at the same time, it was something I wanted to do. Uh, So when I got in country, they asked me, where do you want to go? I said, well, let's go to an infantry outfit. And they, they thought, again, they thought I was a little rocker. But I figured if I was going to be there, I might as well be with the guys that get trained to do what they were doing. Not that the other people that drive trucks and cooks and artillery or whatever, don't do their job, they're all trained too. But the infantry was the one that was fighting that thing. You know, the six people backing up every infantryman there to make sure he's got his beans and bullets. And uh, my job with the infantry battalion was the support platoon leader. I made sure that they got plenty of food and water and bullets and every once in a while a beer or two and some soda. But I enjoyed my time over there. I I still talk with guys from my outfit. They have a reunion every year back in uh, Missouri. And I made one. Can't go to all of them. But, no, it's, uh, I've had a very interesting career. My wife, uh, you know, she and I have been married for 60 years. She was in there most of the time I was in the military. Traveled all over the world. My kids didn't have to move around as much as a lot of military kids do. They got to stay in one place because I, you know, like I was in the Navy in the submarine service. They didn't move from one place to another. They just stayed, and I I went on board ship. When I got off the ship, I came home. It's. I could probably talk forever about what all I, because I had, it was interesting what I did. I got to work in varied places, like in Germany. I was on another infantry battalion there, and it was the Allied Command Europe Mobile Forces contingent from the United States Army. And we'd go off to Greece or Denmark or someplace like that, and it was a show of the flag. we were there with the French and the British, of course the Greeks, the Germans, Scots, our sister battalion in uh, in Scotland is the Royal Scots. Their regimental headquarters is in Edinburgh. Uh, a year or so after we went on our trip, first trip to to Scotland, a couple of lieutenants and I went over to to Scotland and went to the regimental headquarters, and you know. Our our nation hadn't been around as long as that regimental headquarters has been, you know. It's as Mary Queen of Scots' royal protectors, and uh, they have quite a a history and a lineage. And uh, their sergeant major, who is in our army, a sergeant major is you know the senior enlisted men, in their army, same thing, but he could be posted at a different location at a different regiment uh, as a warrant officer. And uh, I was a warrant officer, so we had met on the first trip to Greece, and he was actually the one that had arranged through his colonel, his regimental commander, for us to come and visit. And in turn, their regimental commander got to come and visit with our our colonel. And so... It was, a, you know, if you're going to become compadres and uh, friends like that, it it helps out. Uh, it was exciting to go there, you know, to see where the, that regiment had been going on since, I guess around four 400 or somewhere around there.
0: So what was it like actually?
1: Being in Vietnam? Well, uh, like I said, uh, I left the Navy in August of '69 in Guam. In fact, my commanding officer on board the USS Franklin swore me in as an Army Warrant Officer because I got my orders uh, while we were still at sea. And he promoted me. And uh, as soon as we got back to Guam, I went up to Anderson Air Force Base, I guess it's called. It's called Anderson Field. And caught a plane back to um, Hawaii and then spent a night there and then caught a flight on to California so I could get home. And uh, stayed home for about a week or so and then we went to Virginia. And then went to Vietnam uh, in late 69. And flew into Cameron Bay and late at night, and they gave us all of our things that we needed, and they asked, like, asked me where I wanted to go, and I told them, and they said, okay. After they went to get psychiatrists, I guess, to find out if I was a crazy or not, but I figured I might as well be with with the guys that knew what the heck was going on, and uh, I got to, Coochie and I was supposed to go through two weeks of jungle training, which would have probably helped me out quite a bit. But the people that I was with, my regiment, battalion, they found out I was there, so they came over and barred me. <laughs> and said, we will, we'll send him back when we can spare him. Well, they never did. And uh, we spent time in Ku then we moved from there to Daocheng. Stayed there for some time. We went into Cambodia in May of 70. That was an excursion. Uh, We were there for probably a week or so. No one shot at us or anything. There weren't weren't any unfriendly people around. And then President Nixon said, we're going over there into Cambodia and, and get the people that are bringing down the supplies and ammunition from the north. And uh, then they got a little upset with us. And later in June, when we finally came back into into Vietnam, we went back to uh, Dao Chang, stayed there for a few months, and then we went down to Camp Frenzel Jones down by Saigon. And then we went to another post out east of there called Swanlock. And... uh, then it was time to come home. I had some good people that I worked with. Uh, we were near the Michelin Plantation in uh, Chang, which now most of that area is underwater. They built a dam there. And a friend of mine in our group that we, we meet every Wednesday for lunch, a group of us in this area, uh, he's been back a couple of times to visit over there, and he was telling me about it, brought back pictures of it. Where we were in Chang, the, the base camp is now underwater. They use that water to grow at least three crops of rice a year, whereas before they probably get two at the most. So Vietnamese are very smart, intelligent people. and uh, Well, I don't get into the politics of it. We I went where I was told to go.
0: I've heard the word. This others have used the word tense as far as their time in Vietnam. Well,
1: it it was. You know, my chief concern was making sure my my people in my platoon were safe because we were we were there uh, shooting and moving and communicating all the time because our our job was to make sure that the guys were out in the woods someplace or wherever they were at, got the supplies they needed. Uh, whether it be, you know, hot food in a mermite can or sea rations or whatever, uh, we made sure they got it. We made sure they've had plenty of ammunition. In cases of where, like one time we were on Pine Ridge, they got, <clears throat> got overrun and one of the things that we were doing that night was getting water up there to try and put out the fires and uh, bring back the wounded. And I never was, I don't know, I guess I could say I could have been a turtle and got under me my shell, and, but too many things were, if I didn't do my job, other people would suffer, and I didn't want to do that. Because, you know, I was 31. Most of the guys that were there were in their 20s. Or, or teens so I was an old man compared to them and uh, I just took it upon myself to do what was required and uh, and the people that work with me my sergeants and my soldiers sort of like that I let them do their job and I didn't look over their shoulder and tell them what to do. They were probably more proficient at it than I was ever was, until later on after I'd learned it. I had a good sergeant. I I gave him a a mission to make sure that I learned everything that I should know, because you know, submarine duties are quite a bit different than being in an infantry battalion. Yes. But it it was exciting in that we were always doing something, you know, we didn't sit around. It. You know, sometimes it got a little boring when you sat there for two or three days and you didn't get a mortar or a rocket at you. But the people around Yao Chang, I guess they wanted it pretty bad because it 48 hours and you hadn't had a rocket or a mortar in there, you got to get a little Nancy and start, (laughs) you know, staying away from uh, the open areas. But, um, well, it's, it, <clears throat> you know, I, I've heard the, the saying, you know, that a uh, little kid asked uh, his grandfather if he was a hero, and he said, no, he uh, knew quite a few of them, you know, or, you know, however the saying goes. It probably comes from one of the World War II movies or whatever, but I've heard it from other kids that talk about their grandfathers and their fathers. Uh, What we did was not popular. It wasn't popular at home, of course. And I've had a couple of experiences, you know, with people getting a little uptight and up up in my face. But you have to shed that or you dishonor your uniform. And I wasn't going to do that.
0: So... So let's let's, let's cover the extremes here. What was the best part about being in Vietnam?
1: Oh, the the comradeship, you know, the people that you were with, you know, the lieutenants, the young lieutenants that had been through infantry training, you know, OCS or uh, West Point, depending on where their commission came from and where they were from, uh, it was uh, a melting pot. You know, we knew the good lieutenants. We knew the young lieutenants that needed a little help. Uh, you know, the captains had been there before. You know, they were, for the most part, on their second tour. Uh, my first captain, John Lochner, uh, he was on his third tour. And when I first met him, he and I got talking, he said, I'm going to complete this tour. He said the first two tours he didn't complete. He got, he didn't pay attention to his his sergeant and he got shot. So he said, I'll leave it at that. The second time he got over, he was with the Arvin, uh, Airborne and he jumped out of a perfectly good helicopter and busted something and he had to go back to the States. So he, like I said, he was there on his third trip. Uh, some of the lieutenants, I still run into it once in a while. Some of them, one, one uh, captain that was with me over there, I served with him again in Germany and again at West Point. And uh, I was lucky enough to see him retire out of the Army as a Lieutenant General. And uh, he was just an old Southern boy from, from Arkansas, slow talking and it was disarming to people because they thought that because he was slow talking and that he was not very bright. But as it turns out, he was about sixth in this class at West Point. So he was a smart fellow. And uh, he had a lovely wife that was a Taekwondo black belt that used to use him as a practice dummy. (laughs) No, I had some very good friends uh, and I still have good friends that I get to talk to or Right, every once in a while, I lost a good, some good friends over there. In fact, at the end of it, you know, in the last few months that I was there, I, I didn't want to become friends with anyone. Uh, it's been one of the things. It's been one of the things that I have with my, with my doctors. Is uh, you know, one year here. In 2012 and 13, I lost three brothers and eight real good friends of mine. So I was saying, damn, excuse me on language, but it's not a good idea to be a friend to me or kin to me. And uh, that's something that I wrestle with all the time and uh, my wife is very supportive. She listens to me, get a little crazy at night, so to speak, and because sometimes you you remember what's going on if you get stressed out, and that's why I try to keep busy and not get stressed out uh, but that's what happens to a lot of fellows. you know we have young fellows that are having this same problem coming back from Afghanistan and from Iraq. My son, his last six years that he was on active duty, he was with the SEAL business. And I get get after him, you know, like I said, he was going to Bahrain. You know, he spends more time away from home now than he did when he was on active duty, it seemed like. Uh, But that was his chosen profession. He and I both served on the same submarine. 25 years apart. In fact, he was born during the first patrol when we were on the USS Vallejo. I put him in commission out of Mare Island, and he was born during the first patrol. And we got a family gram. That's one of the ways we communicated while we are at sea. We got little radio messages, and they called them family grams. And they sent me a message, said I had a nice son, you know. But it didn't tell me how my wife was doing. They just said my son was okay. So that was that was good news.
0: So we kind of covered the, the best side of things. What's what's the worst part about being in Vietnam? Well,
1: I think the the, uh, the inability of to, to keep people safe. You know, you you feel uh, like you're not doing your job when you're somebody in your in your your outfit or your uh care gets injured. You know, had a captain uh got hit and he was a big man. He he took a bullet through his arm here, a fifty one caliber. It would have taken my arm off, you know. But he was a big guy, about six five, two sixty, something like that. And uh we went down to see him <laughs> in the hospital and he was just, you know, he was in, I'm sure, tremendous pain and they had him in a cast and everything like that and he was ranting and raving and this big old nurse just grabbed him by the nose and says, you know, if you don't shut up, this is coming off. <laughs> See, there's a little humor in, in, in something like that, but he did calm down, he did get to come home, and. Uh, But the poor fellows that didn't, you know, when we were in Cambodia, one of my jobs was handling our casualties, you know, grave registration, so to speak, until we could get them back to a base camp there in Tainan. That was not a very good task to have, but it was a necessary one. And, uh, you know, there's... Any war, I don't care where you're at, and I can only speak to the ones that I've been in, there's moments, There's you don't have a care in the world, you're joking around, drinking a beer, having a soda, or eating, and then the moments of sheer terror when you don't know what's going to happen. You know, when the rockets and mortars start falling on you, when the bullets start flying in, uh it gets a little disconcerting. And you worry about the safety of the men around you. Not so much yourself, because we used to have a saying, and it's probably still true today, the bullet that's got your name on it, you can't miss it. The one that doesn't have your name is not gonna hit you. The only one you have to worry about is the one that says it to whom it may concern. And, uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was a, a senior warrant officer that was our maintenance officer. Uh, he was a W-3, and I was a, a brand-new warrant officer. He was sort of a fatherly figure to me. I mean, he wasn't that much older than I was, but he had been in the Army a lot longer, to, of course, than I had. And he says, you know, it's, it's, here's what you do. Worry about the things you can take care of. And don't worry about the things you can't have anything to do with. You know, you can't control things that, you know, you don't you don't have any control over. The ones you do, do the best you can, and hope for the best. And uh, is that being, I don't know. And and two, I'm a fatalist too. Things that happen to me happen for a reason. You know, why did I retire and come to Oregon instead of retiring going back to California? Well, several reasons, but I had three brothers and two sisters here in Oregon so I figured we'd come and live near my brothers and sisters. My wife was not real happy that we decided to retire. I think she had gotten used to the military and I think that uh, if we'd have stayed another five or six years she would have been happier about it. But i tell her, I said, you know, if we hadn't retired, you know, Stephanie wouldn't have met her husband. We wouldn't have two great-grandkids. You know? We might have had... He, she might have met another nod head and we'd have had a couple of grandkids who weren't worth that job. So, what can you say? You know, if we had a crystal ball, there's a lot of things do that we wouldn't do or would do, right?
0: So you referenced this a little bit earlier, but what was the reaction coming home?
1: Oh, I I, I I, had a good coming home in that I rode directly into Travis Air Force Base. I got off the plane there and uh, my wife was there within 25 minutes because we live right there in Balea, which is just down the road from Travis. And uh, I was home for a little while and then drove to Oklahoma to be stationed there. I was there, stationed there for a little over a year before I finally got to go to Germany. Now I had some, uh, had a little problem a couple of times with idiots in, in the airport. But uh, one occasion in San Francisco airport not long after I got back, I was down there getting tickets and stuff to, for the trip to Oklahoma. And I had worn my uniform because I was going to a, a, a function that night with a bunch of my friends from the submarine service who were stationed at Merrillan. And I figured I'd go in uniform because they were going to be in uniform. And uh, this guy got in my face a little bit and uh, just knocking him on his rear end. uh, It was probably one of the biggest and blackest police officers I ever saw, came up and asked if it was a problem. And I said, no, I don't think there is. And he sort of passed along the invitation to the young fellow that was getting in my face that he should move along go find someone else to harass. And, you know, it wasn't that he was, because he was so big and imposing, probably for the fellow that that we were talking to, but it was just sort of a sigh of relief that I didn't get into a scuffle or something like that. Because people have the right to do that because I gave them that right by serving in the military to protect their right to be an idiot if they're gonna be an idiot. Uh, You know, I don't, I certainly don't agree with a lot of things that are said and done, but in all truthfulness, uh, the First Amendment doesn't say, well, you can say anything that I like and don't say anything that I don't like. No, it doesn't say that. It says you can say anything you want as long as it doesn't infringe on someone else's rights. And then the interpretation of whose rights is, whichever is, sometimes winds up in the judge's room. But, you know, you you can't take things that don't make sense to you and and try and straighten them out all the time. You know, you have to sort of move along. You know, I had a good, good episode of friendliness and family in Oklahoma. When I got there, I went to see a friend of mine's father and mother. Billy Wood and I had been in Vietnam together, and his mom and dad lived there in a little town outside of Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And uh, I drove over and found their home and everything, went up and uh, knocked on the door, no one was there. And I was coming down the stairs get in my car, the pickup truck drives in, and uh, this elderly man, well, he's not elderly to me, but he isn't—he was then, he got out, and he stood behind the door, which I sort of, at the time, didn't think too much about it. And he says, uh, can we help you? And I said, yeah, I'm looking for Mr. Woods. And uh, he says, and who are you? And I said, well, told him who I was, and I said I was a friend of their son in Vietnam. And he turned to the lady and he says, Mama, Jack's here. That was on a Friday evening, Sunday night, I got to go back to Fort Sill. So, <laughs> you know, I had the weekend off. But they would, you know, I became part of their family, you know, because I had been a friend of their son over there. And, you know, come Friday night, if I wasn't at their house, I'd get a phone call. You know, mama's got supper on the table and you're not here. Where are you at? (laughs) But uh, good people, you know, and and people in Oklahoma are that way. And a lot of people here in Oregon are that way, uh, especially in Eastern Oregon. If you don't, if they don't like you, you don't want them, they don't want you around them. But if they care for you, or like you, then, you know, they'll give you the shirt right off your back. And uh, I like people like that. I, I tend to gather them around me, you know, people that I trust and people I don't care for, I don't have anything to do with. It's usually uh, easier on them as it is on me. So let's, let's uh, fast forward
0: back up to the honor flight. Let's, sure. Uh, tell me about the, the uh, we're going to kind of go through just a quick rundown of the trip. So how was it listening to the speakers and stuff on Thursday night about the, the Arlington, uh, the changing of the guard ceremony? Were you there well, that at the dinner Thursday night?
1: Yes, I was there, and, and I got with sergeant, retired sergeant major that, uh, that gave the speech, and uh, he was kind enough to give me his card and uh, I talked to him about getting a copy of his presentation. And I have since re- received that, I have actually have a, a website that you can go to and download his, his presentation. And since then I bought two films that talks about uh, Arlington, the history of it. You know, films that's been produced by uh, uh, firms yeah, the um, the Sergeant Major, he's a, a state police officer. And uh, we met a couple of people that he knew when we were there at Arlington. One of the ladies uh, got me and my grandson up above the— where the soldiers were marching uh, across the uh, area there at the uh, Tomb of the Unknown. Uh, so we had a good view I got some good film uh, recordings from my phone and also some good photographs. It was uh, very enlightening. I had been there before and had met with the people that went to the 3rd Infantry folks. There was quite a few people that are in the 3rd Infantry Regiment there that are not necessarily, you know, uh, honor guards uh, that support them. And uh, the people that are in the honor guard, you, I'm sure you know, are all selected because, you know, you have to volunteer to do it and start off with, and then you have to prove yourself. And uh, they have ladies in that uh, garrison of people that, that do that job. That is quite an honor to do that. No, it, it was it was quite exciting, you know, the, uh, one of the ladies said, make sure you bring your wheelchair so you can get up there and watch it a little closer. I, I did, we had a wheelchair for me, but I usually was the one that was pushing it to carry our junk in, you know, the stuff that we had in our pouches or whatever. Uh, and, and at times it was good to have a, a place to sit down and, um, uh, Like I said, my grandson was taking care of somebody that was not as, as infirmed. And maybe that's the wrong term to use, you know. I didn't need it as as some of the other fellows. Uh, We, one of the young ladies, she was with her grandfather. He's a preacher up in the uh, Albany area. Uh, They were in our group. And we would sit and talk about different things. And, uh. I really enjoyed that, and and going to Arlington uh, has always been. I've been there three times for funerals of friends of mine. Uh, I've been there a couple of times with my wife, you know, when we were on the East Coast visiting our our kids in in New Jersey and in South Carolina. And uh, it's a a hallowed place. Uh, that we have to have such a large place to bury our military dead. Uh, but at the same time, it's nice to have them in a large, if we're going to have the, the graves, have them in a place that is tended and maintained as well as they do there. That uh, changing a guard and a present, they we, we presented a, a wreath there, and I didn't really realize how many times a day they do those wreaths, you know. When we were there, they had already been six presented before we showed up for our, our wreath ceremony. No, that was, it's different. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be stationed in some You know, like at West Point, the first military post in the United States, go to Arlington. You know, General Lee and his family, their property was taken. They tried to get it back more than once. But his uh, wife, you know, started, actually started the cemetery. If you read into the, the history of Arlington, they started very in... Soldiers out in her flower garden there to the side of her home. And uh, after they confiscated this land, it became a, a, a cemetery, a national cemetery. Tell
0: me about the World War II memorial. How I was I wasn't seeing that
1: with the. Beginning. Well, I, 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 like I said, in the times I had been before, that wasn't there. That was really great to see. And one of the interesting things is that uh, Kilroy, you know, I said, eh, everybody, you got to go find Kilroy. Where he's at? Well, Kilroy's here twice, one on either end. And uh, my grandson and I, I told him, I said, you need to find that. So he did. And then I said, well, no, you didn't find both of them? And he said, what do you mean? Two. I said, yeah, there's two of them. But that was just something, sort of a gimme uh, to get at him because him being the history buff, and uh, I got one on him, so, you know, I was part of that grandfather, grandson thing. And uh,
0: I mean, what was the whole Kilroy thing?
1: Kilroy is, is, is comes from the people that went around and inspected the riveting in the shipyards, and it was a guy, because they would go in and chalk at it chalk off area that had been inspected and then they would, because they counted the number of rivets, well, the people would wipe off the marking so they'd get credit for more rivets. So this guy started this Kilroy design, you know, him looking over a fence, says Kilroy was here. And they used it all through the Second World War. You know, you'd go into a a town out of, near Bastogne, one of the little villages there, and there'd be some GI come through there, and he'd put the Kilroy sign up. And it was something, you know, just like Bill Mullen. He was a a war correspondent, drew cartoons about the the two uh, GIs. Uh, It was part of American lore, you know. If Kilroy's been there, you know, there's been some good soldiers come through here. And uh, people, it was a way of making people coming into that area be a little safer or feel a little safer, I think. Of course, that's just my opinion. Uh, But that memorial, uh, just fantastic. You know, the workmanship and uh, the, the design. Uh, and I just don't quite, you know, they had a big fight about getting that thing built. Uh, I read about that and also in, in one of the articles about Arlington that speaks to it, uh, you know, they had congressional committees and suits and whatever, but finally they decided to build it and they built it. They could always tear it up and, you know, put them all back the way it was which would be a waste of money and time. No, it's beautiful, and the World War 2 vets, excuse me, got their, their memorial a lot longer, or I should say a lot after other ones were built. The lady, it was uh, well thought out, you know. All of the states and the uh, areas that are under government control, like uh, you know Guam and, and and the Marianas and stuff like that, are all represented because people from there served in our military during the Second World War. And uh, how
0: about the Korean Memorial?
1: That one is a little bit different. And when I got in there, I got to talking to a couple of ladies that was there cleaning the statues. And uh, they were volunteers. And there were people in there with uh, the different uh, you know, power washers cleaning the statues and stuff like that. The artists that designed and prepared those statues are just outstanding. The light, like faces and features of the hands on the weapons and stuff like that. Whoever did those knew what they were doing. Uh, it was sort of like they had to be there to understand it. You know, uh, either the person that drew the drew the drawing for the design and stuff. I really enjoyed that. And in the winter time, that would be a much more Powerful memorial in the wintertime, because Korea is. You think of Korea, you think of the the wintertime, the chosen reservoirs, things like that, when the Marines were in there. Um, but you know, we went in October. It wasn't any snow. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was the first time I'd been there to see that. Those the World War II and the Korea were not there. The last time I was there. Um, how
0: about the, uh, the big plane
1: museum on Sunday? Did oh, you, you mean over there, familiar the Familiar looking is, aircraft in there? Well, sure, and, and some of them I had seen in Germany. You know, some of the German aircraft they had in there? The the Fokker aircraft uh, has a, a museum outside of, uh, I think it's Munich, somewhere between Munich and Stuttgart there, uh, you know, and, and, and the Porsche and the Mercedes-Benz factories. You see aircraft engines and things like that because, you know, they were in the war production business. Uh, the Blackbird that's in there. i have seen a Blackbird before. I saw one fly. I was at the Air Force Academy for a football game back when I was stationed at West Point. And that thing came roaring down through those mountains up there by Fort... Uh, what's the name of that place? Peterson... Peterson Field, Fort Carson, we were at Fort Carson, but the Air Force Force Base there, and that thing come running down through there, and it's a wonder it didn't break every window in around around there. Those are fantastic areas. And and of course, I had seen one once before down in Florida, and the thing, when it was set on the ground, it was actually, it seemed like it was uh, dripping wet. It was because the the uh, the fuel tanks and stuff like that, the skin on that aircraft, the higher it goes, the tighter it gets. It seals that up. and uh, you know the people at Lockheed, I guess they knew what they were talking about when they built and designed that thing that was a that was a nice place to go to it. it from what I understood, it hadn't been opened that that long before we got there.
0: Well, last, last question For I run out of time. Sure. Uh, why is it important for Vietnam War veterans to get to the wall?
1: Uh, I don't care. Well, I'm only speaking for myself. I can go there and I can see names of men that I knew, men that I knew of, my wife's Uh, co-worker at the Bank of America, her son's name is on that wall. Uh, I think of the time when my wife came home, this is back when I was still in the Navy. She came home and said that the Army had come to her work at the Bank of America on Market Street in San Francisco to tell her that her son had been killed in Vietnam because they couldn't get her at home. So they found out where she worked, so they came to her work, which I thought was horrible. Yeah. But they had a duty to do, you know. I I, I watched the film, uh, We Were Soldiers, you know, with, uh, uh, about Sergeant Pumley and uh, General Moore. Uh, what their families went through in, in Benning, when they were the first ones over there to get into the a, a really a shooting war. It had been shooting before them, but they were serious about it. And the cab drivers coming around to deliver the the. The telegrams, you know, and it was a very good portion or good thing in that film about the, the tragedy of, here's this poor guy. It wasn't his fault that he had to deliver those things, but they should have thought about doing something better you know, and later they did, of course. They got a little better at it as we killed more people. And and that's sort of a sad way to say that. But we lost a lot of soldiers over there for some of the stupidest reasons, you know. Uh, why?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, Ho Chi Minh tried to be friends with Americans after the Second World War. He'd been fighting the Japanese for 40 years before the Second World War. After then, they said, oh, no, we're going to give all that land back to the French. Well, politicians sit in Washington, D.C. and decide what goes on in the battlefield. You know, Robert McNamara explained that in his book. You know, he, he fessed up. Uh, it was, not a, it was not a good war, and there's no such thing as a good war, don't get me wrong. But people were over there that didn't want to be there. And some of them did fantastic above and beyond things. I had a, good, uh, I had a soldier that worked for me that in a three-day period, he lost two lieutenants, and 12 men on his platoon. For his efforts, he was awarded a DSC and a Silver Star and two Bronze Stars and a Purple Heart. Uh, he was offered a uh, to become a second lieutenant and he told General Abrams that had, had come there to do that, they were having a big ceremony, and they said, uh, no, thank you, General. He says I got thirty days in a wake-up. I'm going home. So, he does did.
0: It, does, does it I mean? Does it bring comfort? Does it bring any kind of peace? Does it bring
1: what? No. Why, it, why, why visit
0: the wall? Well,
1: oh, it, it, it's to visit a friend, a comrade, to uh, to be there and. Uh, It's a memorial to the men and women that lost their lives uh, defending our nation's ideas and things. Uh, the, uh, The one thing about it is it's so monumental. You know, you walk up on that thing and it's just the lady that designed that, I she's fantastic. Uh to have designed that and, and to see that, you know, we start out in when fifty eight or something like that, the first one to seventy five. The names and of people and I'm sure that they I don't know how they do it, but I'm I'm sure somewhere they've they've had they've had to add people's names on there that they found out later. You know, I wear this bracelet of a fellow that didn't come home yet. Hold it up a little bit. It's uh, a it's higher, a little bit, a little higher. Higher. There you go. It's a it's it's M I A MIA bracelet that I got there when I when when I went there the first time, and I got to looking at the names and everything, and I saw this. I said Cambodia, nineteen May, nineteen seventy. I said, holy crap, I was there. And since then I've researched this young gentleman everything, Bunyan Price from South Carolina, North Carolina, maybe pardon. He was about six clicks from where I was when he got shot down. Two of the guys became prisoners of war, one guy got away and almost got killed by our own folk, him trying to get back into safety in a base camp. But they've never found his remains. And uh, my wife here a few years back, she she got a silver piece of metal. This is stainless or something. And uh, she had it engraved the same as this. And I wear that on a special occasion. This one here I wear all time because this guy was, like I said, about six o'clock from where I was when he got shot down. And, you know, if we had been a little closer, maybe we'd have been able to help him, but we weren't. And, and how did I find this? God knows. Like I said, everything happens to me for a reason. Right. And uh, people say, well, what's that? And you explain it, I well, why are you wearing that? Well, why not? He's a, friend of mine. He's a, a soldier friend of mine, you know. And uh, there's a lady here in town she has one for her, for her brother. Her brother's never come home. And she has his bracelet. But war, you know, I was, like I said, I was 31 when I got over there. I had been in the submarine business for a long time. It's completely different than being in combat. I mean, we were doing a job in the in the submarine service that was in a in a bigger way of protecting the United States. The the soldiers and sailors and the Air Force guys and Marines that were in Vietnam uh, were on the ground. You know, they were in the mud and the blood and the whatever. And it was just a little different, and I wanted to do my part. And uh, does that make me—I uh, don't know. You know, my wife thought I was stupid. But then, when after I got back, then she understood why I went. And uh, and maybe to use the term "stupid" is incorrect. She didn't want me to go. Right. You know, we had two children, young kids. And uh
0: you were, you were very dedicated. Well, I
1: I was a professional, if you want to say it that way, because I went to other places that you know things have happened, not as bad as that, but you know uh, it's nice to be <laughs> it had been places where I got shot at and couldn't shoot back. Then when I got to Vietnam, you know, or before then, uh, you know, I was able to shoot back or duck and run or whatever you want to say. But it, it was different. I enjoyed my time in the military. And my wife was right. I may have, I may have should, should have stayed longer because I could have. And uh, But a lot of things changed if I'd have stayed, you know.
0: Everything happens for a reason.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Thank you for listening to the Valor Vault Podcast. Remember to subscribe for more veteran stories and tales of the Honor Flight. Our episodes are available at www.swvhonorflight.org and at valorvault.podbean.com.